Welcome back, Primetimers. I'm Charlie Stevens, your host, and this is Primetime VC, bringing together the best in venture capital to compete around the hottest topics in tech. In today's show, we discuss upcoming IPOs, investing in cannabis, and who is the greatest female entrepreneur of all time, the GOAT. Before we get started, show that support and subscribe to the YouTube page. Hit that notification button that's in the upper right-hand corner and don't forget about the podcast. Now let's meet our top venture capitalists walking into our VC Thunderdome. Natalie Dillon, principal at Mavron. Hi everyone, I'm Natalie. I'm a millennial aspiring to be a Gen Z. Our first Gen Zer on Primetime VC, welcome. Jenny Friedman, general partner, Supernode Ventures. Hey guys, Cardi B of VC is back. Glad to be here. Always glad to have you, Jenny. Caitlin Strandberg, principal, Lair Hippo. Hi everyone, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm just happy to be here. All right, well, we're happy to have you. It seems like you've come prepared. Uh, Caitlin Coglin Stern, principal at Homebrew. Hey everyone, I'm super excited to be here. Let's get this started. All right, let's get this started. This is how the show works. It's a competition. We bring together the world's top VCs to battle and provide you the insights on how to invest with the best. Our venture capitalists will give their takes on funding, innovation, and technology, and we will give them points based on style, stats, and facts. The top two VCs with the most points move on to the finals, the world famous money round and go head to head. Winner takes all, including the platform to promote whatever they choose. Now let's jump in to the most electric show in business entertainment. It's Primetime VC, the show of accredited banter. Primetime VC is supported by First Republic Bank, banking built for innovators. Trinet, expertly human HR solutions. Brex, scale your business faster with Brex. Cash management and corporate cards for your team in 10 minutes or less. Use our link in the show description to sign up today. E2 Generations, we solve problems that live on Excel. Fox Rothschild, nimble, entrepreneurial resourceful qualities you want in your lawyer. Go to foxrothschild.com to learn more about their startup and venture capital practice. First in. IPO alert. There's a number of high profile IPOs still slated for 2020. Airbnb, DoorDash, Robinhood, Poshmark, Wish, and Qualtrics to name a few. Which one are you most excited about and why? Jenny, kick us off. All right, Airbnb was already positioning itself in protection mode in May amidst the pandemic when it laid off 25% of its workforce and raised a billion a billion dollars to shore up its finances. Rentals reached record levels at a million bookings in July when COVID regulations started easing. So they put tons of safety policies into play. Rentals in the off the beaten path destinations have been very trendy and people are choosing Airbnbs for seclusion and privacy over hotels with hundreds of people. The company is a strong brand in a dominant leadership position, especially since management has shown its ability to change and adapt throughout COVID. And to be honest, they tapped into a whole new market of peeps during the pandemic, AKA myself. I never thought my dream vacation would be a road trip to a tiny cottage in Rhode Island, but like, thank you Airbnb for the opportunity. 
big support of Airbnb as well. Kate, what do you think? So on a personal note, I'm most excited to see DoorDash IPO. I, uh, before going into venture, I spent about five years at Uber and for those who are on Uber Eats. So I'm personally super, super excited to get a deeper dive into DoorDash's financials, uh, see how they've been pulling off unit economics. They're obviously all always one of our best competitors. On a broader note, um, they've obviously experienced some great tailwinds from COVID, and I'm really excited to see what a standalone delivery business uh, post-COVID world looks like in the public markets. All right, Natalie, which IPO excites you? Yeah, so for me, it's a tie between Airbnb and Robinhood, largely because I think these two have been the most transformational in changing consumer behavior. But for the sake of this, gonna choose Robinhood. Um, one, super early adopter. Two, could have been one of their first 50 employees. That might've been a mistake on my part. And third, um, I think there's just a, a really kind of fun story that this company that was first positioned to disrupt Wall Street is now joining Wall Street as a public company. But here you have a company that you know had a million users in 2016. Two years later, they're at 6 million users. Now in 2020, that there are over 13 million users. I mean, it's really an amazing, amazing growth story. And when you look at their users, about half of them are opening their brokerage account for the first time. And so um, it's an incredible growth story. I want to know more about their secret sauce. I want to see that S1 and, and learn what, what they're up to. All right. All right. Uh, Caitlin, what do you think? Um... So I think I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Jenny. I'm a big fan of Airbnb. At Larry Bow, we invest in a lot of brands, and um, you know, in my mind, Airbnb is the world's first global hospitality brand. Um, I think in uh, they have something like seven million bookings on their platform, which is I think three million more if you combine like Intercontinental, Marriott, Hyatt, kind of like these big brands that are just kind of old lazy legacy incumbents. So I'm most excited about Airbnb. I think they're the future of hospitality. I think it's a very millennial Gen Z centric brand. Uh, and it's a, it's an amazing marketplace that has done incredibly well. They were actually, the S1 was actually written uh, uh, before COVID hit. I think they were actually gonna IPO at some point in March. So I've, I've been waiting with bated breath to see, um, to see that uh, S1. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I was just excited to hear your answer so I could actually use that information on Robinhood. Uh, any of you investors on Robinhood? Or I mean, I'm actually pretty anti Robinhood. Oh, all right, Natalie. That's okay. You can be anti. I uh, uh, can I share why? Yes. Is this an appropriate time to share why? So I am on Robinhood. I like Robinhood. I think it's pretty interesting. But I like they've had a really dark underbelly. I think they have not managed kind of like user expectations well. Unfortunately, there have been some some uh, you know suicides driven by. Uh, presumed like losses from teenagers. It's way it's made retail investing way too accessible for way too many people. There's a reason that it you know it takes a couple hoops to go through. Um, I think secondarily, like they have terrible customer service. From what I can tell, there have been a handful of security breaches. There's been a handful of um, notifications that have gone out to users saying, "Hey, your money has been transferred out, and they can't access it." And when you call Robinhood or you email Robinhood, they say, "Hey, hands up!" Like you know, uh, we'll get to this in like three to four weeks. I I don't think that they're gonna IPO this year. I don't think that they're ready to IPO and they have a long way to go uh, in terms of being what I what I perceive to be like a healthy, sustainable company. But I do, you know, I play on before, it. No, totally. Yeah, before we move on, Natalie, you got a rebuttal to that? No, I mean, I, I, I think that Caitlin brings up a lot of points, but you know, I wanna know that underbelly. I feel like there's been so much 
attention and scandals that have um, that have uh, followed Robin Hood, but we frankly don't have that much information about it. It seems like a lot of it is quite speculative. So I'm with you, like there are some shady parts, but there's also, I think some wonderful parts that people who would have never had access to financial services are now using Robin Hood. I just want more information to really understand what that underbelly looks like. I guess the question is, uh, what are you most excited about? And I think that that's, that actually is a pretty exciting one to learn a lot more about. A notable think tank, ITIF, predicts the new administration will increase funding for emerging tech R&D, reskilling programs, and rural broadband infrastructure. What will a Biden-Harris White House mean for the tech industry? Natalie, your thoughts? Sure. Um, so it was announced that Biden's chief of staff pick will be Ron Klain, who previously worked at the VC firm Revolution. And I think just the nature of that bodes well for, for the tech industry. Um, but Revolution was really founded on the premise of investing in founders in the heartland of uh, this country and are very blatant about not investing in the coastal elite cities. And I think that balance of someone who understands technology, the importance of innovation, but also really understands the heartland of, of this country bodes well for this presidency, especially during such a divided time. Um, but in terms of the three areas you highlighted, for me, I think building out broadband infrastructure is the most pressing in a remote environment where so many children are you know, learning for the first time or, you know, or, or getting their education online. Um, you have 15% of US households who don't have access to broadband and that's a, that's a real concern. And um, I think we need to actually, you know, opportunity of, of education is something that we should have in this country. So I hope that's one of the things I solve for. Okay, Natalie coming out with the stats right away. Caitlin, what do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, the Biden-Harris White House, which I'm very excited about, is definitely going to mean some changes for the tech industry. I think we're going to see a lot more regulation than we have in the past, and that's probably a good thing. Um, you know, I think to the conversation we had about Robinhood, I think consumer welfare is is going to be kind of top of mind for for I think this administration, and and that's a good thing. We're going to see you know needed pushes for uh, cybersecurity. We're going to see um, entities like Twitter and Facebook starting to behave in a way that ran rampant during the Trump administration. And I think it's going to be overall a good thing. I think it's going to be uncomfortable. I think it's going to be a little painful, but um, hopefully the reform is going to um, actually occur and it's going to put us in a better position um, as a, as a you know, digital economy going forward. It's, it's, it's got to happen for us to um, continue to grow and expand kind of uh, uh, the tech industry in a kind of social positive way. Yeah, I, I agree definitely with the uh, the Twitter uh, needs to be fixed up a little bit. Uh, Kate, what do you think? Yeah, I think first like, I would agree with everything that Caitlin and Natalie said. I think the one thing that's hard to be discounted is how much more stable I think the overall markets and cultural like national sentiment will feel under Biden. Um, so I think that'll only lead to good things in terms of people being willing to take more risks in their entrepreneurial and career lives. Um, I think another great thing will be there's already a lot of signals that immigration will open back up. That was one of the biggest pain points for companies in our portfolio. Uh, getting folks visas has been a struggle for the last four years. I'm so excited to see an influx of talent from across the world, bringing global, pers global perspectives, uh, diverse perspectives to the tech companies in the U.S. Um, and yeah, I think we'll see an increase in antitrust regulation. Um, we're already seeing signals of that. The Democratic-led House is already cracking down and uh, seems like this administration will 
uh, we'll definitely continue those trends. Jenny, back to you. Thoughts on how this is going to affect the tech industry? Yeah, so I'm super pumped about this about this new admin, but um, I'm not. I'm not. I think there's going to be tons of changes. So back in January, I don't know if you guys remember, Biden said tech peeps were creeps with overwhelming arrogance. So I think it's safe to say that we're going to see definitely greater regulation in the tech sector, and this starts with antitrust enforcement. So that was even increased under Trump. Um, I think we're going to expect to see new efforts to support constituents at the expense of big tech. So that meaning stronger protections for data privacy and civil rights, efforts to provide economic security for gig workers and increased investments in digital infrastructure and adoption programs to make sure everyone has access to things like telemedicine and online learning. And I also think this administration will repeal Section 230. I don't know if you guys disagree, but that's the legal liability shield um, to try to you know, eliminate disinformation. But all that said, Biden's top campaign donors were largely tech execs, and I'm sure some will, some will end up on his cabinet. So it'll be interesting to see just how hard he comes down on big tech. Okay, Jenny's on fire right now. Caitlin, I see you smiling. Uh, do you have a rebuttal or you want to add something to that? No, I think she's right. I think, But I also think Biden's right. Uh, tech is a bunch of, what did you say, creepy peeps? Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, like a bunch of arrogant. He said he, he was really mean about my friend. Actually, not my friend. I'm friends with Ariel Zuck. I'm not friends with Mark. But he said mean things like, He's, he openly hates Facebook, he like openly hates Mark Zuckerberg, and he's like, he said tech peeps were creeps with overwhelming arrogance. I think that's true. That <laughs> resonates with me. Buy or sell. This is Buy or Sell, a rapid fire segment where you love it and you buy, or you hate it and you sell. Let's go. Crowdfunding gets a major boost as the SEC permits startup companies can now raise up to $5 million in funding. Buy or sell, the democratization of investing in private companies is the biggest trend in venture capital for the next decade. Kate, buy or sell. I'm a big sell on this one. I think that good venture funds provide more than just money. I hope that like when people come and ask me to invest, they're not just looking for dumb, cheap money uh, and that they value raising from funds for things like expertise, for network, for introductions later down the line. Um, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, for better or for worse, also really value uh, the signal of having raised from a top fund. I think like I will be surprised if the best entrepreneurs and the most uh, competitive entrepreneurs would rather raise a crowdfunding campaign than from Sequoia, for example. Um, but yeah, so I'm a hard sell and I think that uh, the best companies will continue to raise competitive rounds from institutions. Jenny, do you agree? Buy or sell? Okay, I'm not a hard sell at all, but I, I also don't think that this means that, I mean, okay, I'm willing to put myself out of a job if I say buy, so I don't really think buy, but if you don't get funding from a top fund in C stage, then you'll get a, a, a funding from a top fund um, after that. And this whole like the whole thing is five million bucks. So more access to capital leads to more small businesses, which means leads to more jobs. And that's exactly what we need right now. So the alternatives for investing in quality companies raising five million bucks, which is a legitimately sized a round are limited to direct investments by peeps with unique access to deals and or paying unnecessary fees in like a angel syndicate. And a lot of a lot of small businesses have found prior regulatory framework to be really pretty confusing. And I think overall, these changes are going to reduce potential friction and make the capital raising process way more efficient. So I might have put myself the early stage funds out, but I got to say it. Teetering right on the line. I like that. But uh, it, it's almost like the shift too. the, the seed capital has changed 
from Series A and the amount of money. So maybe it just kind of shifts it more. Uh, Caitlin, what do you think? I'm a hard sell. I think that um, uh, investing in, as a, as a citizen, as a non-accredited investor, investing in startup ideas is a very dumb way to spend your money. Um, the reality is a majority of companies fail. Majority of funded companies never come to fruition. If you go to Kickstarter or any crowdfunding campaign, it's just like a, it's a, it's a graveyard of dead bodies of ideas that never got funded. And, and you can't validate the founder. You can't validate anything about it. I just think it's, it's like gambling. And so I don't think it's opening access there is, is aligned with the anticipated outcome, which is like real value creation. I actually, on the other side, I wish that there was a mechanism for uh, non-accredited investors or maybe even accredited to um, invest in slightly later stage companies. So they're able to take, uh, they're able to take the value creation that happens in the private market before companies go public. Okay, Natalie, do you agree uh, with this? Yeah, so I'm a sell as well. Um, while crowdfunding is great, it is not going to be the biggest trend in venture capital in the next decade. Um, Kickstarter, largely probably the biggest crowdfunding site, raised about $4.5 billion in 2019. When you compare that to venture capital funding in aggregate in 2019, it was $136 billion. So you're talking about 3% roughly. Um, and, and frankly, even with favorable regulation, I really don't think that crowdfunding is going to pose a serious threat to the venture capital industry. I think rather um, you're going to see more clever financial engineering like SPACs. You're going to see more diversity around the table that's going to be pushed by LPs and founders alike. And that's going to be a bigger trend in the next decade than, than crowdfunding. I, I like what Kate was talking about. How can I add more value to you? You know, I've never heard that one in venture capital, but. <laughs> How can I be helpful? Value add. The green wave has finally hit the shores of Arizona, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, and South Dakota, as they all legalize some form of marijuana use. Buy or sell investing in the cannabis industry. Caitlin, give us your thoughts. Cue Snoop Dogg. Um, I am a huge buy here, huge, huge, huge buy here. Um, at Lair Hippo, we've actually made a number of investment, investments in the cannabis space. So we're investors in a company called LeafLink, which is kind of infrastructure. We're investors in a company called Banks, which is like a LinkedIn for the cannabis industry and a handful of CPD products. Um, we've been investing for the last few years. We're really excited about the space. I think the legalization is only going to be more of a boom. Um, you know, I think uh, on one hand, you're going to get legalization, which is amazing because with legalization, you get regulation. With regulation, you get more customer interest and consumer trust um, and more efficacy around products. So I think that's kind of one piece. On the other side, you're going to get tax revenue, just like alcohol. And that's something that I think cities and states really need at this point. So we think there's going to be a ton of innovation. Uh, there are going to be a bunch of interesting uses. When you look at consumer trends, health and wellness is great. And with cannabis, you know, you feel better. It's all natural. It's healthy. Um, you can really do a lot with it. And so so we're very excited about it. And I'm a huge, huge, huge buy. Uh, Jenny, your thoughts on the cannabis industry by yourself? Yeah, I'm not copying, but I'm a huge buy also. Um, we don't have a position in cannabis and I wish we could just flaunt it right now. But so I think the green wave really represents green weed and green money. States are making bank from marijuana sales and taxes. Legalizing weed nationwide could generate more than $100 billion in tax revenue and create more than a million jobs over the next five years. Um, legalizing weed would also have a positive impact 
on the racial justice initiatives, especially since in 2018, 40% of all drug arrests were marijuana related. And this isn't even a leftist thing anymore. The majority of Republicans think that weed should be legal too. So I think it's just a matter of time and I'm hoping to add some portfolio companies to our fund. All right, Kate, buy or sell? Again, huge buy. Uh, I feel like this is one of the next big waves. Uh, Nothing really struck me more than when every business shut down for COVID in San Francisco, but dispensaries were still considered essential. Um, and so dispensaries and liquor stores like lines down the block doing great business. Um, I would echo what Caitlin said around opportunities in the infrastructure side, though. I think as we see more and more states legalizing, there will be a combination of consolidation and innovation on the infrastructure side where things are really uh fragmented now with distributors, and there's no reason why it needs to stay as fragmented as it is on the alcohol side. So I think we'll see some interesting tech there. Um, and then I'm also really excited to see what happens on the financial side. Uh, right now, all cannabis businesses are kind of cut out of the mainstream banking system. And so I think there's a huge opportunity for fintech focused on cannabis. Okay. Natalie, are you going to agree with everybody here uh, on the cannabis industry? Unfortunately, I'm going to agree. I wish I could be a little bit more contrarian, but I think it's quite literally a green space. Um, there's tremendous consumer appetite. In one of the states, Mississippi, every politician, all these voices told their voters not to vote for the legalization of marijuana. Voters came, they voted with their feet, they want marijuana to be legalized. I think we're gonna see a lot more brands, a lot more infrastructure supporting this green wave. I think the question for us, where we're predominantly investing in brands, um, how do you really function, how do you really differentiate beyond just the ingredient? So is it function, is it taste, is it, brand and on the venture side similar to what jenny raised i think a lot of lps that you know fund venture capital firms come from conservative pockets um and just don't allow for investing in cannabis and, and i hope that changes but um we'll you know it's great to be lair hippo right now to to invest in in uh, cbd and thc it's uh, listen it it sounds like you're a fun group to hang out with that's for sure so <laughs> I, I appreciate you all buying that and maybe i will too the U.S. Department of Justice filed an antitrust lawsuit challenging Visa's proposed $5.3 billion acquisition of fintech company Plaid. Buy or sell, this acquisition goes through. Jenny, what do you think? Okay, buy, this is why. Visa controls 70% of the online debit transactions market, but MasterCard has 25% of the market and Plaid has the same amount of the market as I do. This is a very smart and also very monopolistic move by Visa. Um, Plaid owns tons of data on consumer behavior and financial transactions, and if time weren't an issue, they'd probably use their own data to build some sort of internal product. But right now, Plaid just provides a tech that allows us to link up our bank accounts and other fintech apps, which is complementary for Visa, not competitive. Unless they find some smoking gun where Plaid admits that they were going to compete with Visa, the DOJ is SOL. And that means shit out of luck. I don't know if we could say that, but. You say <laughs> It's the internet, you can say whatever you want. That's right, that's right. Uh, Kate, what are you thinking here? Yeah, so first I'll just like disclaimer that Plaid's a portfolio company of ours, but I don't have any inside information on this one. Um, I'm also a buy for all the same reasons that Jenny was. Visa's 
a payments company and Plaid just isn't a payments company. They're a data company. Um, I do think, unfortunately, this is going to be a big distraction for both Visa and especially Plaid over the next year plus, um, as it seems like the case is going to be long and drawn out, and I don't think we'll see a resolution for a while. Um, but that said, I still think the transaction will go through, and I think the good news is, even if it doesn't, Plaid was a great company before. It's a great company afterwards. If anything, people are more excited about Plaid post-acquisition offer, so... I think the future is bright for Plaid either way. They are a great company coming from their investor. Absolutely. Natalie, what do you think? Um, I think the acquisition goes through. Um, I like the Plaid guys. I like their service. I'm not an antitrust lawyer, but this is why I think it goes through. Um, you know, Plaid works in the background to link information across platforms and accounts. Visa doesn't really compete directly here. And in my mind, this is much more of a vertical merger, which in recent history um, hasn't received as much scrutiny as a horizontal merger, like a Uber Eats and Postmates. If Visa was acquiring American Express, whole different story. But um, we're, we're looking at, I think, a complementary, not a, a, a horizontal merger, which would um, which would be a completely different ballgame. Okay, okay. Last, Caitlin, uh, are you going to agree with everybody or are you going to be uh, the eyeball out here? I am going to agree with everybody. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not that sophisticated of an answer. Like, I kind of think of, like, the PayPal acquisition from eBay years ago. I think it's, like, incredibly complimentary. I think um, it's kind of short-sighted to think that, um, you know, this is this is – in the long term, incredibly complimentary instead of competitive. So I'm I'm optimistic it goes through, but um, I'm I'm pessimistic that it's not uh, incredibly painful. Any any last remarks before we cut uh, some people off from the show that is going to make the finals? Always compliments are helpful, but if you have any last comments about this topic, go ahead, jump in. It's good to be homebrew. Yeah. <laughs> it is good to be homebrew. Uh, absolutely good to be homebrew uh, with that investment, but not for Primetime VC. I apologize. You are cut. Uh, homebrew is out. Natalie, you are out. And Caitlin and Jenny have made the finals. Whoa! Jenny must be either the smartest person in the world or the most overprepared. Do we have a fact checker with Jenny's dads? That's, I'm sure they're right, but if we don't have a fact checker, I'm going to start coming up with a lot of stats. I think you should just go for it. Just start throwing some stuff out, Caitlin. The Money Round. Welcome to the finals, world famous money round. Three more questions, winner takes all. Let's go. Fred Wilson of Union Square Ventures spurred a conversation on Twitter around early liquidity versus holding on to an investment, essentially asking VCs if they should take their money out early or hold strong. What are the most important details to consider when making this decision? Caitlin, over to you. Um, so I think there are, there are many details to consider. And I think what Fred said is he, he doesn't necessarily sell his stake, but it's with every successive financing round, he sells off a little bit. So it's definitely an incremental build over time. Um, you know, I think there are a couple of things you need to consider. One is the time for a company to, to go public or to have some sort of liquidity event. Um, two is kind of the value that you're selling at. And three is the expectations of your fund and your firm and what, what type of returns you've promised your LPs. Those are kind of the core things to, to consider in my mind. Jenny, well, what are the considerations uh, you're making in this decision? Okay, I'm looking for fewer details. If you're a VC investing in early stage founders, you can't be looking for early liquidity. You have to have the risk tolerance to be in this job. So 
Fred also said he's maximizing his sleep by selling early and I'm looking to maximize my money by holding. Sucka! <laughs> Send it to Fred. Je Jenny's looking to win this. The food tech industry was dramatically disrupted in 2020 with surging demand, but venture investment dropped for the third straight quarter, falling 30% over Q2. Where is the future of food tech going? Jenny, start us off here. Okay, yeah, it's duh, it's bioengineered food tech. That, so bioengineered food startups raised $1 billion in Q3. That's the highest for any quarter in the past decade. You can check the stats. Perfect Day was 300 million in the raise and Impossible Foods was 700 in aggregate. And I think the smart peeps are forward thinking and making investments for long-term gains, AKA our investment in new age meats. Caitlin, future of food tech? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of aligned with Jenny here. I think food tech is only gonna continue to grow. I think if there was any lag, it's because of, uh, you know, lack of kind of, I don't think it's a space that's well understood by traditional venture investors. You know, food science is very different than uh, technology. I think that we're in like the very, very early innings. And I think these businesses are also incredibly capital intensive, which doesn't make them suited for venture financing. So, but I think in coming years, we're gonna see more and more of a push here. We're gonna see, uh, you know, big corporate arms actually making more investments in this space. So we're gonna see more innovation. We've invested in a handful, including a company called Plantable Foods, which is a new type of plant protein. Um, so we're excited, we're, we're positive on it, um, but it's it's gonna be a bit of a long slog. Okay, I, I like my Impossible Burger, that's for sure. It, it, shockingly, I'm a big burger guy and Impossible Burgers shocks my, it's mind blowing. I don't even know how they do it. It's scientists, amazing. Hemoglobin. Well, soon it's gonna get better. All these, all of these um, early, you know, consumer products and food products are, they're good, not great. I don't know if you've ever had a non-dairy yogurt before, but, um, you probably won't have it a second time. Uh, they're only going to get better. Like they, this is the very first innings. Uh, I, it's, I think it's a really exciting time and it's something that consumers are demanding. The healthy, healthy for you products, better for the world, lower carbon emissions, it's gotta happen. Uh, and I think it's going to happen. Entrepreneur Chris Kardashian just launched a new product called Grandenza Hot Sauce, adding to their robust portfolio of brands. Our final question is, what female entrepreneur is the greatest of all time? The GOAT. Jenny, who is the GOAT? I mean, if you know me, you know my GOAT is Kim K. Like, that's, you stole my answer with the question. So, I mean, I think you were expecting to hear something like Charles Sandberg, but like, I just, Kim K is just, love my life. Caitlin. Oh my gosh. Um, there are so many. You know, I've got to admire Sarah Blakely. Um, from Spanx. Uh, I think her story is incredible. She she kind of like sold these door to door. She got massive distribution. She, uh, to my knowledge, she didn't raise venture funding. She's like a, uh, she persevered, she had grit, she she had a great outcome and she's self-made. So I, um, I like that story. There are many, there are tons, but that's one that kind of comes to mind for me. Okay, okay. I think Madam C.J. Walker, the first self-made female millionaire could be up there. Oprah. Oprah, I was, gonna, I was thinking Oprah, Beyonce. Yeah, yeah, you were. Oprah, absolutely. Martha Stewart and Snoop collab. You know, there's a lot of answers out there. Uh, you, uh, the problem, Jenny, is you didn't say Oprah, and Caitlin is our new winner. Congratulations. Against all odds. Amazing, what a comeback. That was uh, unbelievable. Honestly, I did that all with uh, just a singular piece of data. So Jenny, I am so sorry. This game is rigged. 
The final word. I'll promote two things. One, we're post-election, very divided nation. Uh, be kind to each other, be kind to your family, seek to understand, but um, try to put things in the past. Uh, so that's one. Uh, two is, you know, my job is to invest in startups and new companies. I think the best ones that I've seen recently, particularly kind of post-COVID, are businesses that people are building with based on problems that they have. So I encourage anyone watching or or anything like that. If you're looking for uh, uh, the right time to start a business or think about a business, now's a great time to ideate. Think about a problem you have, uh, some sort of unique insight you have, whether it's, um, you know, age in terms of Gen Z, we look at a lot of Gen Z or the particular community you come from. Now is a great time to start businesses. Now is a great time to think about specific problems. Uh, and, and I really think that we're going to go into a really great moment in the next you know, probably in the next cycle of, of some of the world defining world changing businesses. So not every company has to be a billion dollar business. It can be a small business. It's very successful, but I do encourage everyone to um, take some action on your idea and see what happens. Thanks for watching Primetime VC, your go-to source for accredited banter. Please follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, wherever you want. Troll us, do it, do it all. Uh, thank you. See you next week.